Do you have to have deep pockets and a huge organization to be a real conservationist? The answer is no, and we're going to tell you how and why with my friends over at Northern Idaho, Whitetails Forever, and in a little teeny bar in Philadelphia called Tun Tavern, the United States Marine Corps was born on this day, November 10, 1775. Happy birthday, Marines. 245 years of walking, stalking, death, and destruction. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. How fitting is this? It's episode 45 on the 245th birthday of the United States Marine Corps. How cool is that? Welcome, guys. Welcome, everybody, to the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tine Studio right here in Haiti, Hayden, Idaho. Snowy Hayden, Idaho, I might add. I was in the deer stand this morning, and uh, the the tops, I, I was, I, I've got this little deer blind, and I decided to set it up, and, and I'm sitting in there freezing my butt off. There's a bunch of does in front of me, but the tops started collapsing in on me. So I've got these does in front of me. They're just kind of wandering through, and I start smacking the top, and they didn't even flinch which is the damnedest thing when you're talking about whitetails, which is a lot of what this episode is going to be about. I've got a couple of guys on, and uh, one is a return guest, and you you probably know well as Dirk Durham. And we, we normally talk a lot about elk and elk hunting and strategies, and he even brings his uh, brother Doug Flutie on every once in a while <laughs> to uh, join us on the show. And Dirk's joined with the president of the Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever uh, association, uh, and he's a president, and he kind of took over as president just recently uh, when, when Dirk moved down south uh, to southern Idaho. So if you're listening to this from like Colorado or Wyoming or somewhere, you know, outside of Idaho, uh, you'll get a lot out of this still because what this what this episode highlights is how people can take, you know, an idea, uh, a belief, a something to do with conservation, and and you've got a concern as hunters. Every every hunter has a concern, and every hunter has a different take on on a different aspect of of how fish and game manages our wildlife, and and goes about the business of making laws and regulations and seasons and and all that kind of stuff that ties into what we're going to talk about in this episode. And these guys, they actually did something about it, and they have achieved a lot of things in a very short amount of time. And it might not seem like that in their perspective, but this is how change happens. And this is how you as a hunter can make an impact by doing the same thing that these folks over at Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever, it's kind of a mouthful, so bear with me, uh, got this done. And, and they got some seasons changed, uh, some days kind of shaved off a very long season. It's very rough on our whitetail herds. And so it's it's a really cool conversation. And so we're going to get get to that. Before before we get to that, there's a couple things I, I'm, I'm going to do a, a quick tribute to the United States Marines, because you guys know, if you listen to this show, it's near and dear to my heart, and I want to talk about it for a minute. Uh, it's also my birthday today. I am officially over the hill, 40 years old, and uh, yeah, 
I feel the same. You'd think I'd be a lot more mature and wiser recording this intro, but gosh, I'm, I feel the same as I did last week, except for it's not election day. So speaking of last week, the uh, how many of you picked up on that episode mistake I, I made? So um, <laughs> when I loaded last week's episode <clears throat> into my podcast platform that distributes out to, you know, like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and, and all the all the places where you can hear it. I put the wrong MP3 player into my system to send out into the, 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 the waves of the internet. So there was no intro, there was no music, there was no ads, there was no nothing. It, it just was like this conversation, and at least, you know, um, I just wanted to apologize about that. You may have noticed I, I pulled that out. And uh, put the put the actual back in. I think I noticed it on Thursday. I didn't even notice it. So what? And it was funny because it was election day, and so I'm like, man, I got to get this episode out. But election day, they're starting to call states. It, you know, it's it's starting to be, get get to be evening, and so I, I take I, I run up to the studio, grab my laptop, go back in the house, and wife and kids are in there, and they're talking to me, and we're watching the election, and I'm sitting here trying to type up the the show notes. And put all the links in there and, and load the MP3 into there to be distributed. And I snagged the wrong one and put that out there. So I apologize about that. It uh, ended up uh, working out, though. So And I want to apologize to Don Ebert for that because, um, you know, it just isn't the same without all the cool music and stuff, right? So that's that. We got it fixed. And now we're... Still a week later after election night, after I, I made the mistake and, and uh, uh, definitely watching the results and, and seeing how this thing played out. And, you know, the, the, the thing that I come away with is I was suspicious of our government and, and uh, our election process and, and, and just shady people, politicians in general and the media and all that. And I, I was that way before the election. Now I'm now I'm a lot more so. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Jim at the Western um, but anyway, okay, guys, the Marine Corps tribute. I want to talk to you guys about this because it's something that is a big deal in my life. Many of you are, already know I, I spent uh, just under five years in the Marines. I was a I was in the Marine Corps Infantry. I was an 0311 rifleman, and I was stationed out at Camp Lejeune with Second Battalion, Second Marines, and the Second Marine Division. And the the Marine Corps is something that is very difficult to explain to people that have not been in the Marine Corps, and the the and I think there's a lot of misconceptions and and a lot of things that like people might not understand. A lot of people, you know, they they claim that we're we're super egotistical and we're uh, we've got we've got just kind of an ego uh, or we're cocky. You know, some of this stuff is true. I don't I don't uh, not agree with that, but the Marine Corps makes you that way. And the Marine Corps that gives you this kind of air of confidence because you've you've achieved something that a lot of people will never experience. And here I am, as I told you, I'm I'm now 40 years old out of, as of today. I'm over the hill. That that four and a half years or so of the Marines is the most vivid time of my life. And it's something that I think about more than anything else in my life. The time I spent, there's not a day that goes by I don't think about the events that took place in my life uh, during those d- during those years in the Marine Corps. The Marines is a special institution. It was founded in a bar in Philadelphia called Tun Tavern in 1775 on November 10th. Obviously, it's November 10th on the date that uh, I'm recording this. Founded in a bar. 
It was initially designed to kind of be have some troops that could protect naval vessels. And, and if you don't know this, the Marine Corps is a department of the Navy, but it is its own military uh, unit, uh, institution, or I, I guess branch, so to speak. They first fought their uh, foreign battle in Tripoli, which is modern-day Libya. And this is where they basically uh, captured a, a harbor with uh, that was filled with Barbary pirates that were kind of, you know, wreaking havoc on, on uh, naval ships, or I'm sorry, uh, merchant ships in, in that area. And that's where the Marine Corps officer's sword was presented, and the Marine Corps officers still carry that same sword today. If you ever heard the term devil dog, the Marines are nicknamed Devil Dog, which comes from the Battle of Bella Wood in World War One, in which the German officers, after the battle, were doing these battle reports, right? And they were they were kind of having to make these after-action type kind of reports. And they kept referring to the attacking Marines as Tufelhunden, and that is German for Devil Dog. And this was due to the continuous ferocity and aggressiveness of the Marines. They didn't know what to do with these guys. They just kept attacking. They just kept coming. So they were Devil Dogs. The two hundred, and it's a it's a very popular term still used by by a lot of Marines today. You know when you when you go into boot camp in the Marine Corps, it's it's not like any anywhere else. And, I, and a lot of people there's there's a lot of Hollywood depictions of this, which uh, the, the only one that's that's truly even close to being accurate, uh, it would be Full Metal Jacket, and and that's a great show if you ever want to kind of see from a, you know a bird's eye view of what what Marine Corps boot camp looks like. That's that's a really good example. It's not totally accurate, but it, it what 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 it depicts is the uh, the character and the culture of the Marine Corps. And and boot camp isn't just this place you go and you get yelled at for you know 13 weeks and then all of a sudden it's you become a Marine. No, you there are steps that you have to take. You have to qualify. You have to pass a knowledge test. You have to know Marine Corps history. You have to know like codes of conduct and regulations and and the general orders and all these things that you have to take a test and pass. You have to qualify as a swimmer. You have to qualify on the rifle range. You have to qualify in all these different things to uh, become a Marine, and it's like a stepping stone, right? And then at the at, towards the end of it, they uh, they send you on this this thing called the Crucible. And it's like 72 hours of food and sleep deprivation with all these obstacles and, and uh, just physical endurance kind of things. You do this, these crazy obstacle courses where, you, you know, you've only had two hours of sleep and uh, you haven't really eaten anything all day. And, 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 and then it kind of materializes at the end with a really long march, whether you're in – if you're in South Carolina, I don't know how that one – uh, that that one goes uh, the the really long in a Marine Corps it's not called a hike it's called a hump and so you, you you hump it out for the last you know several several miles and where I went I was in uh, San Diego so um, by the way real quick if you have children in the car listening to this you might want to do some earplugs or fast forward but you, it materializes in San Diego with a hike up this uh, this mountain called Mount Motherfucker and that's what we called it. And that's where, at the top, they present you with the emblem of the Eagle Globe and Anchor, and you are officially and forever a United States Marine. And that's what I think about. So when, when we're talking a lot about hunting, and, and these, these uh, a, a lot of us are like gear junkies. I'm, I'm really not a gear junkie, uh, and a lot of my friends are. And, and a lot of people talk, the, the, the big talk of, of backcountry hunting and, sh- you know, cutting your toothbrush in half and stuff like that. It's sometimes, for me, it's... it's, it's uh, it's kind of funny because it, when, in, in the Marine Corps, you, you've got this thing called an Alice pack, which is super uncomfortable, or a Molly pack, depending on what, what time you were there. 
And that thing, that thing is is uh, 40 to 60 pounds. You've also got uh, you've also got something called a flak jacket that's got these plates on the inside. They're bulletproof to to prevent you from getting shot. That thing's a good 25, 30 pounds right there. You've got your deuce gear loaded down with a full combat load, which is six loaded magazines, grenades. I had the M203 uh, grenade launcher attached to my M16A2 service rifle, so I had the extra grenades for my grenade launcher, and I'd love to have that thing today because I'd take it wolf hunting. Uh, and, and you can imagine the weight. We're, we're, we're trucking down the road uh, on something like for the MUEX, which is a Marine Expeditionary Unit exercise, and it's kind of like the final culmination training when you're a fleet Marine prior to deploying overseas as a MU, a Marine Expeditionary Unit. And so we go on these rotational deployments overseas with the Navy, and we're there to respond to anything that happens, and, and which we did uh, when I was in the Marines. But this MUX is, is 30 miles in one day with all that loaded on your on your body. When you get to the end of this thing, you have no skin left on the bottom of your feet. It is the craziest thing. We ended it on a Friday, and I basically laid in bed Saturday and Sunday prior to going back on, on Monday. I, I just – nobody could walk. It's tough stuff. It's really tough stuff. And boot camp – is probably the easiest part of the Marine Corps, but it's a very difficult transition going from, you know, 18-year-old high school kid to all of a sudden Marine Corps boot camp. And that's that's really one of the main missions of the Marine Corps, to make Marines. They only have two missions, make Marines and win battles. That's their entire focus. In World War II, just before the Battle of Tarawa, the Japanese commander proclaimed that it would take a million men a hundred years to take this island. The 2nd Marine Division did it in 76 hours. The significant part of the Battle of Tarawa to me, in, in, for me personally, is, as I told you, I was stationed in, uh, in, at Camp Lejeune with 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines. I was in 1st Platoon of Echo, or Echo Company 2-2, uh, Easy 2-2. And I got to meet, because we the, the, the base would put on these reunions with World War II veterans. And so... I got to meet the exact guy that had my exact job in the during the Battle of Tarawa. I was the uh, at the time I was in first fire team of first squad of first platoon. I became the first fire team leader of that uh, after after this. But this was back when I was still a saw gunner, so I was carrying around this M249 saw machine gun. So I was a, I was a machine gunner for the for the fire team, and I got to meet the guy who was in that exact billet when he landed on the beach of Tarawa, and I got to be his escort. So I escorted him around base and was showing him all these things, and and the guy, you know, he's in his mid 80s at the time, uh, was a millionaire. He owned a bunch of restaurants to include a bunch of Hooters, and uh, he offered to give me his business when I got out of the Marine Corps. Because he didn't like his kids, <laughs> it was the intro. Because so so what happened after after I toured him around, this guy took me to the bar, off base that night, and the guy can drink like a fish. He outdrank all us uh, young Marines, and and he was buying us all rounds, and and uh, we we're all like toasted, ready to go home, and or ready to go back to the barracks and pass out for the night. And he was just getting started, man. And uh, I had to hang in there. I had to drink coffee and stuff just to keep up with this guy. It was crazy, and he was a cool freaking dude. He gave me a little thing of sand from Tarawa, and it was just one of those things that I will always remember for the rest of my life, meeting that guy. Just a crazy cool guy, uh, and uh, he's long gone now, but uh, man, what, a, what an experience to meet that guy. And so 
the, the, lastly about the Marine Corps, the, the, the personalities and quotes that come out of the Marines is unlike anything else. And I want to share some quotes with you, like from Eleanor Roosevelt. She says, The Marines I have seen around the world have the cleanest bodies, the filthiest minds, the highest morale, and the lowest morals of any group of animals I have ever seen. Thank God for the United States Marine Corps. Ronald Reagan said, Some people spend an entire lifetime wondering if they've made a difference. Marines don't have that problem. A Marine Gunnery Sergeant, Dan Daly, he was leading an attack at Bella Wood, the same battle where we got the name uh, Devil Dog, the nickname Devil Dog from. He yelled, Come on, you sons of bitches. Do you want to live forever? The father, Father Kevin Keeney, a chaplain in the Marine Corps, he, he, he said something interesting. He said, You cannot exaggerate about the Marines. They are convinced to the point of arrogance that they are the most ferocious fighters on earth. And the amusing thing about it is that they are. Another guy, James Mattis, General Mattis, you may, have, you may know him, he was recently the uh, Secretary of Defense under Donald Trump. But he said in Iraq, two Iraqi tribal, tribal leaders, I come in peace, I didn't bring artillery, but I'm pleading with you with tears in my eyes. If you fuck with me, I'll kill you all. The safest place in Korea was right behind a platoon of Marines. Lord, how they could fight. That came from Major General Frank Lowe of the United States Army during the Korean War. And one of my personal favorite quotes came from my own battalion commander shortly after September 11th. Because I was, I was in the Marines. We were, uh, we were actually in California at the time during this training uh, in the desert in 29 Palms, California. And, and that's, when, that's where I was when September 11th happened. I'd been in the Marine Corps for about two years at that point. And he, he got us together and he said, Look, Marines, it is up to God to determine forgiveness for terrorists. It is up to us to arrange that meeting. So if you've ever wondered why Marines fly more flags, they sport more bumper stickers, wear more Eagle Globe and Anchor and Marine Corps attire and T-shirts and jackets and hats, and maybe even have like an unpleasant level of confidence and ego, this is, this is part of why. So I just wanted to say, say that and, and give a shout out to the, the Marines out there. And obviously this week is also Veterans Day, and I don't want anybody that was not a Marine, but they served their country in a different branch to be discounted because I highly respect you, and I want to thank you for serving our country. I, I have the utmost respect, and you are an honorable person for doing so. So do not discount what I'm saying. But I'm a Marine, and today is a Marine Corps birthday. It's also my birthday, and this is also my show, so I get to give a special shout-out to all you devil dogs out there, United States Marine Corps, 245 years. Thank you guys for what you guys do, did, and thanks for being my brothers and sisters. Appreciate that. All right, guys, with that, let's get on the, the line here with uh, with Bill and Dirk, and we're going to talk whitetails, and let's kick this thing off. Have a great week, guys. We'll talk to you soon. So this is going to be interesting. I got Dirk Durham uh, that is normally on the show to talk elk. And I've also got uh, Bill Samuels, who is the new president of the North Idaho Whitetails Forever Association. And we are going to have a talk about whitetail deer. How are you guys doing? Thanks for joining me. Doing great. Doing great. Doing real good up here, Jim. 
So, Dirk, this is a, this is a first for us, man. We're not going to be talking about the the Wapiti this time. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I I not only love elk, but I love deer. I love whitetail deer, especially the ones in Idaho. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the the big question I have for you is now now you're down south. How how are you going to do any whitetail hunting down there? Um, yeah, there's just not much of that down here. You know, some might argue though, um, I think in Southeast Idaho and some of the agricultural stuff, there's some, some decent whitetail hunting. Uh, I'm not, you know, and it's all, it's all foreign to me. I don't know if they have uh, good herds or not there. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, I just finding a deer hunting spot. I think it's going to be tough down here. It's, you know, it's all new country and big country and mule deer, they're a whole different critter. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm at, I, I, I want to come back up North because I love the country so much, but that's a long drive. And, and you know, my opinion on how good the hunting is, I don't, I don't know if I'm really willing to drive up there for that kind of hunting. So, <laughs> well, and that's what, that's what we're going to talk about today in terms of the whitetail. And so a lot of people don't know this, uh, you know, with, with Dirk, with the bugler and and we've been talking to him about the elk collective and he works with Phelps game calls and all this stuff, but he's also the former president of North Idaho whitetails forever. And just to give kind of a, the 30,000 foot view. And then I want to get Bill's kind of take on this. Uh, North Idaho whitetails forever is an av- advocacy group that was founded by like six or seven guys down in the oral Idaho unit 10 a area uh, and and it, it's a really good representation as to what can take place when people that are determined want to do more than just bitch about something on Facebook and actually make changes and make something happen uh, when they see issues that they feel like maybe the fishing game isn't taken care of or, or there's no voice for that particular issue. Uh, this, is a, this is a great example as to how things can get done. And so Bill... Uh, Bill Samuels is, is just, you just took over for, as president for North Idaho Whitetails Forever, right? That is correct. Uh, I I think it was about in the spring when Dirk was looking to kind of improve his travel and location situation with Phelps calls. And I got the, the very unfortunate call that he was pulling the plug and heading south. So yeah, we had to kind of shore up things and had a long talk and, helped him kind of get on his way and uh but we kept him as a contact and and good hookup so i think we gained maybe by spreading our story even a little further south which is a very good uh, situation to have so and, and bill can can you give us just a a quick history of who you are and and uh where where you're from and how you kind of came to be president of of North Idaho Whitetails forever <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I walked in the wrong door one morning. <laughs> um, sure. I actually came from the the Ohio area many, many moons ago, uh, and I've actually just sent Jim some pictures of a few of the bucks I might have the opportunity to go chase back there, uh, just jaw-dropping. monsters, but, uh, too. Yeah. Yeah, and a uh, very, very different situation back there. Great food source and bow hunting, which uh, Dirk can tell you, yeah, I don't do that well. Yeah, I snuck in a crossbow, so yes, I do. <laughs> they they don't consider that a high fire uh, a high powered uh, firearm back there. But so in uh, the seventies, I was brought out. Uh, my original forte was uh, the timber world, uh, logging and and so forth. And I teamed up with Potlatch back in the seventies, and oh my gosh, 
the things running around here, the elk and the deer was just absolutely unbelievable. So I spent my time out in the brush there with Potlatch and uh, it was like a dream world. You got a company pickup, you worked in the brush all, all the time and then they gave you that pickup. So I was in the woods 24 seven sometimes. Uh, so what I got to see was just absolutely incredible. That parallels with Dirk because he was born and raised up in the Weeipe area and he has proof that uh, the big ones were there. I've got some stories, but he's actually got some proof. So what we actually experienced was an incredible resource of animals. I'll pick on the deer, but uh, the elk and the moose and everything was just beyond description up here in the beginning. And things have changed very, very dramatically as we went through the 80s. Um, things were beginning to change a little bit. Uh, very hard on the elk, but the deer were still holding their own. And in 85 is when things kind of started to change a little bit, just to give you some idea why a group like ours would maybe come to uh, an actual, uh, you know, real concern about what was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, they started, uh, because up till then, most of your rifle season stopped on November 3rd, uh, elk and deer, and then you started your controlled and, but uh, the whitetail were allowed to go through their entire rut, the pre-rut, the rut, and the post-rut cycle with not the common folk there with rifle. And uh, logging was very different, uh, security and access to all the public and private ground, because there's a lot of uh, potlatch ground, forest service state. We're a mix of, Tene is a very unique duck up here for all of the landowners, but the majority are the public agencies, such as the Forest Service and the state of Idaho. And then potlatch is a huge factor in this. Yeah, That's yeah. what kind of began to change some things because on the landscape, when you read the, uh, the plan of fish and game, they have in there about security cover and canopy cover. And those are two very, very important things, no matter what species we're talking about, because if they don't get the shade, during the hot summers, it uh, doesn't matter about all this feed that they claim is in some clear cuts and stuff. If they don't have the security cover and the shade cover from the canopy, they won't be around or in very, very small numbers. So that's what's begun to change is our cutting volume. And, and this is where Dirk and I will interject that we want some myths to be dispelled. We're not anti-logging. We understand that's a part of our economy and that's a part of our landscape but it's really dramatically in a very very dramatic fashion changed what's available for our wildlife at this point uh yeah i would agree with that i i and that's like you said it's not just about uh whitetails when we're talking about that and i'm i'm very much prologging but i have yeah. seen that sometimes when like uh, I have an example down in unit six where uh, I've, I've had a lot of success with mule deer. I know this is a whitetail conversation, but, and this, this particular area, uh, they've, they've really increased the logging up in that area and the mule deer are, are flat out displaced. I've only seen one up there this season. And I, I've, when I first started hunting up there, you know, there, there were mule deer everywhere. There were, I mean, there were, there were hundreds of them. And so that it's, it's a, your point is well taken from somebody who, who, you know, would agree with that side of it. Right. And that's where it's an evolving thing. 
because just because they've logged an area doesn't mean that that's not good because in the beginning, if you do actually go back to the Weipe area and Lolo Pass, and I'm talking all the way back to Lewis and Clark, they almost starved to death because there wasn't a lot of game. Mm-hmm. And what created our great game situation was in fires in 1910, finally began to break up that canopy cover of mature overstory trees, nothing underneath for wildlife. But we passed a peak and then we started down the other side to where, you know, like I said, in the 70s when I hit here, it, it was just mind boggling when I went out in company pickup and drove around through potlatch units. And it was just amazing everywhere. If you didn't see the animals, you saw the sign. And that's a very key part because as we've progressed, and that's what, that's quite a long time ago now, uh, 40 years uh, at least, uh, the logging has now gone on the downhill side as far as its effect having positive breakup of overstory and creating new feed openings, security cover, edge cover, all of these buzzwords for the that the benefits all the wildlife. I mean, we we are pointing on whitetail, but it, everything benefited from it in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. But we're now in a very different mode, and I'll explain just a little from the from the forestry end because it really is key. If you just watched our logging trucks, you can tell how things have changed. In the old days, I call them. Uh, you had log trucks with uh, four, six log loads. Now, and they were 30, 32 foot logs. Now they're 52 feet long. And the average size of the tree on there is about a 12 inch tree. Well, what that's telling you is that they're now logging some of the plantations that were planted in 85. So we're beginning to, I, I guess this is my important point, is we're beginning to really open up the recovery gap from when we first entered a, a timber stand and helped the wildlife, got some growth underneath, vegetation, canopy cover, all these things going on. Now we've slicked off that canopy. We grew up a stand of trees, but we've now taken the entire stand where before we didn't. And we're uh, Dirk and I uh, put together a uh, tour, a field tour, when we were just beginning to meet our new director, J.J. Tier down in Lewiston for the Clearwater region and also at that time, Commissioner Daniel Blanco. And we did a tour. And uh, Dirk and I talked a lot about where we wanted to take them. And uh, we, we, clock, we asked them to clock on the truck. We had nine miles of connected clear cut. That's when things mm-hmm. be, are beginning yeah. to change. Where, no, I'm sorry, we don't have deer running around out there. They're, they're all gone. And then we kind of went back into Dirk's familiar uh, territory through Upper Fords Creek in the Weipe area and stuff, which was tremendous wildlife uh, habitat. But what uh, one key issue that we did go through was a very critical winter habitat uh, called Orofino Creek down out of the Old Mill country. And we stopped the truck and all four of us got out. And Dirk pointed out that for all, I don't know, Dirk, uh, you're, your guesstimate of distance, but at least a mile and a half, possibly two, was clear cut that you could see all the way across in one direction. And Dirk said, and by the way, over that ridge back there, that then is clear cut on down into Upper Fords Creek. So 
what we're saying is that the mosaic of the ground used to be really beneficial, but it's really had a very tremendous impact on the deer. So to answer your original question, we, we began to see a very tremendous decline in the whitetail uh, since about 2000, I'm going to say eight, maybe 12, somewhere in there. All of a sudden, alarming red flags were going off. The, the logging has continued that direction, but what we began to be concerned about was there was no change in direction from fish and game to acknowledge or try to temper their seasons or take. And in fact, what they did in 2008, they extended the season to 53 days rifle in 10A. And uh, I believe up in your units also, Jim, uh, the north up there yeah. has the same issue with 53 days. Well, you start in, in on them uh, October 10th. This is just rifle. doesn't include bow in September bow in November, December, all these other yeah, December. There's a, there's an archery season and, um, yes. Yeah. And, and a lot of people, I see, I, and a lot of people hunt that October season. And so I, I never even think about deer hunting until about Halloween, you know? And so a lot of people do hunt that October season and, and then it just rolls right into that, that rut. And, uh, so you're right. Yeah. It's an extended 53 day, I believe 53 day season. December here 1st. In the panhandle. Yeah. 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 I, and guys, I'd like to back up just a, just a little bit and just want to make sure it's clear because we kind of poo-pooed on the logging a little bit here, but we're not against logging. It's part of our culture, you know, locally in Idaho. We're not against logging. We're not trying to change the way of the, the logging. What we're trying to do is make sure that the Idaho Department of Fish and Game is reacting to all these environmental changes. Um, they've gone years without doing any kind of changes and in seasons or, or bag limits or such uh, in response to the, to the ever-changing landscape. And then that's really what we're trying to bring to the forefront here is, is changes from the fishing game to relate to the ever-changing uh, environment we have, whether it's lots and lots of people, whether it's, you know, loss of security cover. I mean, if, a, in, if it's Thanksgiving weekend and you get some two-and-a-half-year-old buck following his nose, he starts following doe, doe tracks from the night before. He looks up and he's out in the middle of a two mile wide clear cut. Mm-hmm. Chances are he's getting shot. You know. Yeah, and that's that brings up a good point, Dirk, because that's uh, that's exactly what happens. And and the the fishing game may may not be acknowledging because we're we're talking about multiple challenges. We're we're not picking on just the logging industry because we've had we've had the logging right, and that yeah, that's, right. that's affected the habitat. We've had a huge influx in population, so there's more hunters since since the 1970s. Obviously, um, we've also had the extended seasons, and then you want to throw in an even even greater challenge. We we added wolves to the landscape, and yep. so all all these challenges have kind of you know compounded in, into what you guys have seen as a major decrease in in good bucks and 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 just the deer population in in general, especially and specifically in Unit 10A. Right. You know, you know what, Jim, and, uh, and something that, you know, not a lot of people think about, too, that um, has hugely affected our deer numbers. And as soon as, as soon as the fishing game started handing out these extra doe tags, mm-hmm. okay, it got to the point in the Clearwater region, there was 7,200 extra doe tags available every year 
you don't think that didn't clear off the landscape? I mean, that when they started giving out those extra doe tags, I really started, started seeing just the amount of deer plummet. Um, and it's funny because you, you got the naysayers, you know, the guys that say, well, my hunting spot's great or whatever. And, and that's great. I'm, I'm really glad that those folks have a good hunting spot because that makes me feel like hopeful, like, you know, those kind of places will maybe potentially grow, you know, you know, the deer out of that spot will move and move and move and maybe help populate some of the other stuff. But, um, the, the fact of it is, is, and then you have some people say, well, you just have to get out of your truck. You guys need to get off, get off your four wheelers and, and hunt and, and walk. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to tell you, and I, I'll, I'll argue with anybody. We could go side to side. We could go one day walking and we can go one day in a truck or a four wheeler. You're going to see way more animals, deer out of a pickup or a four wheeler than you are on foot in a day. It'll be 10 to one. And here's the thing. And and I'm not saying I like to road hunt. (laughs) What I'm saying is, is if you cover enough country and, and if you, if you pay attention, you know, people say, oh, well, deer are smarter these days because there's so much hunting pressure. Deer leave tracks, deer leave sign. They continue to rut during times when there's a lot of, um, a lot of people around. They do it at night, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, show me the rubs, show me the scrapes, show me the tracks. Back when it was good, there'd be these deer crossings, these little trails. They look like a cattle trail. They'd just be beat down with deer tracks from all the rut activity, whether it's in the at nighttime or in the daytime. You know, they were nocturnal back in the good old days too. But my point of it is, um, we've seen a gigantic loss of animals. Yeah, and and you can go on foot, you can go on foot, and you can cover a lot of ground in a day. And if you see five or six deer in a lot of these places, you'll be lucky. You'll be lucky. So, you guys, you guys saw this coming. You, you saw the changes in in your unit where you're hunting, and and the decrease in deer population, and all these factors that are contributing to that. I, I kind of want to get to the nuts and bolts of how. Uh, so the listeners know North Idaho Whitetails Forever was founded. How how did that come about? Well, um, one of our other members, um, Rick Carver, he was seeing the same stuff we were, but we didn't know it. I mean, I knew Rick from high school and stuff, but we didn't hang out. I never met Bill before. And Rick put together this, this big town meeting and invited everybody, put flyers up everywhere and said, hey, if you're concerned about what's going on with all the deer show up at the high school gymnasium and let's talk about deer. Mm-hmm. And Bill, I don't know how many people showed up that first time, probably a hundred people, maybe? 120, 120, 120 people on the worst, <laughs> on the, one of the worst days of weather we had in December that year. I mean, it snowed, you know, six, eight inches and, and the roads were treacherous, but we got 120 people to show up in the gym. And it was crazy because people, you know, Rick kind of opened up and kind of talked about what he'd been seeing and, and wondered, you know, if other people had the same experience or the same conclusion. And I'm here to tell you, there was people from all sorts of walks of life. It's just not hunters. We had guys who work in the forestry, you know, timber cruisers, guys that go out and cruise timber for the state, for potlatch, whoever. And they're like, they, they, they live in the, in the woods, you know. Yeah, and they yeah go, they're there every day. And it's not like they just take the easy way around. They're covering every square inch of the forest, measuring the trees, right? Counting trees. Mm-hmm. 
the same thing the guy that's that all he did was um he wasn't a hunter he he'd go out with a, a camera and photograph animals and people and then you got vloggers and you had just good old you know old timers that, that hunted and you had young people that hunted and everybody that stood up had the same thing they're like where the hell the deer at there's no deer wow relative you know there's deer of course but it's relative to what we had five years before that 10 years before that 20 years before that there's just been this and all of a sudden we had this just big dramatic shift you know and i know there were some environmental factors we had a really bad winter um the winter before mm-hmm. we had we had snow on the ground in orfino which orfino is very low country it's down by the river low country it for uh for those who haven't been there and in those canyons, those river canyons, the Clearwater river canyons, that's a, that's a wintering area for deer. We had 12 plus inches on the ground at the river all winter. Okay. We never usually have that. We had lots of sub zero temperatures. So that spring, everybody goes horn hunting. They're not finding, you know, the amount of deer, they normally find what they're finding is they're finding a lot of dead deer. They're finding dead fawns. They're finding dead adults. Um, so there was no reaction to that either by the fishing game, by the way, they didn't, they didn't react and say, Hey, we had a really bad winter. We should maybe take a look. And, you know, there was no, there, there was nothing. There was no, um, they weren't inquisitive on what was going on in the landscape. And uh, so anyway, back to the meeting. So all the, all these people got together and kind of voiced the same thing. And after the meeting, there was kind of a handful of us standing around there kicking tires and still grumbling around about it. And mm-hmm. uh, we're like, you know, somebody should do something about this. So I'm like, well, yeah, they should. And well, why don't we do something about this? So we all got together and, and had a meeting and, and formed our organization. Um, just to advocate for the deer and to, to ask the fishing game to, to take off the blinders and quit looking at their doggone computer data and harvest resort results. Let's get your guys out in the field and actually see what's going on because <laughs> the guys that sit, the desk jockeys that sit behind the desk there, they say everything's just fine. They look at these data, re- these reports. They said, oh, well, our harvest data shows that we still shoot the same amount of mature bucks. You know, it had four points on each side or five points on each side. But Yeah, I'm, I'm looking know. at that right now on the on the Idaho Fishing Game website. Right. And that's how they that's how they monitor the whitetail herd condition here. And like it, everybody knows a two and a half year old deer can have four or five points per side or more. Yep. You know, it doesn't actually reflect the age of the deer. It actually just tells you how many deer they shot. No, I, so, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, we, so I shot a two and a half year old buck that was a four by five. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I, and so I just want, I want to put that out there because I, I've said that to people before and they're like, oh, there's no way it was a two and a half year old. Oh no, he, he was definitely a two, two and a half year old. He's the smallest four by five you'll ever see. Yeah, it's, exactly. He is a four by five buck. And, and so, uh, and I've got the pictures to prove it, but and so that does happen for <laughs> sure. Yeah. And you know what we get, we get kind of a bad rap. Our group gets a bad rap. Some people say, you guys are nothing but a bunch of trophy hunters. You know, what about us meat hunters? And, and listen, we're not just about trophy or major antlers or all that hogwash. 
listen, I'm all about a trophy hunting experience. I want to be able to go hunting and I want to be able to see, I want to be able to see deer. I don't care if I see a whole bunch of does in a day, at least I'm seeing deer. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there's always that, that little twinkle in your eye and you think, you know, heck, you never know. I might get a big buck this year. I might see a big buck. And when you have good deer numbers and a good, uh, a good age class in your, in your deer herds, you do see those bucks all, some from time to time, sometimes all the time. Back in the old days, you've seen them all the time. These days, there's just not, you just don't see it. And I, I feel like, you know, the fishing game, they kind of turn a blind eye to what we're saying. They're like, well, you know, Idaho's never managed our deer for trophy quality. We've always um, managed it for um, opportunity. And I said, yeah, but right now what you have the opportunity is what your opportunity for the, the folks coming to Idaho from out of state or the residents here in state, you have an opportunity to buy a tag. You don't have much of an opportunity for a good quality hunt. You know, they say hunter recruitment's down. Um, I don't really see it in the adults, you know, the adult onset hunting hunters, you know, that 30 to 40 year old age group where you're seeing it is at, at I, in my opinion, as at, at, at kids. And yeah. I'll tell you what, it's hard as hell to go spend cold, miserable days in the woods with your kids for them, for them, I love it, but for them to go in there and then not see any deer, then they're like, what are we doing? What are these mythical creatures you're talking about? If you're not seeing very many deer, <laughs> yeah, do these things if you're exist? Not having, <clears throat> yeah. And if they don't have an opportunity for, to experience a good experience, see a lot of game, have the opportunity to shoot something, whether it's a doe or a little buck or a big buck, it doesn't really matter. But the point of it is they're not, they're not able to have that experience right now. And I think that's a, it's a, it's a damn shame and, a, and actually a crime that we don't have those kind of opportunities for the youth coming up right now. That's a really good point, Dirk, because that, what the, the big push right now is to get the youth involved and youth hunters and, and getting them interested and, you know, what's that kid going to do if he goes out and spends three or four Saturdays uh, with dad and they don't see anything? Uh, and, and what's what's his impression, that first impression going to be, um, you know, going forward? Is, is Does he want to go out and do that and get cold and, and get worn out and, you know, eat like crap and wh whatever else happens in the woods or stay home and play video games? What sounds better? Right. Yeah, we're competing with instant gratification with electronics at home and a nice mm -hmm. warm atmosphere. Or, you know, they want to hang out with their friends and stuff. But if you can't take them out and show them some animals and show them nature and interact with animals, they get bored and lose interest real quick. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen it. I have two kids. I raised two kids. Yeah. And my kids came up in the very tail end of anything that if, you know, as the, as the deer numbers are dropping, my kids are kind of growing, right? And it was, it was damn hard to show them a, a good quality experience with a lot of game you know, opportunities to shoot, you know, and they, and they did have some, but my kids aren't diehard hunters. They're not, they're not a nut about it like me. Right. You know, yeah, they're not yeah. like, Oh man, I can't wait for hunting season. They're like, eh, they could take it or leave it. And I feel like since they didn't, they didn't have those same experiences that I had and lots and lots of people had back when we had really great deer hunting. I feel like since they didn't experience that, then that's that's really affected their want or need to go hunting 
You ever go hunting with somebody that always chintzes out on like the most important thing, like boots? I did a couple times. And you know what happened? They slipped and fell down the mountain the entire month of September. That's what happens when you buy $100 boots and, and try to make them last. They don't last. Guys, Hoffman Boots, can't say enough good things about this company. It's a great family-owned business right here in North Idaho. They make badass boots. These things are insanely, insanely comfortable. They just glue your feet to the mountain in the steepest of conditions. They will keep you safer because of that. So while my buddies are falling on their butt the entire time, I'm walking down like I'm in the park. Guys, I have a great promo code that'll save you 15% if you go to hoffmanboots.com. It is all caps lock, Huntsman15 in the checkout when you are ready for a new pair of great boots that you won't have to replace for a very long time. Guys, Scree. Scree is Extreme Mountain Gear. They were one of the first sponsors of this podcast. And this high-performance hunting attire and gear is its scientifically tested camo patterns, backed by a great company, and it's got a lifetime warranty, VIP sizing, and, and, and exchange program. Basically, if you if you order it and it's the wrong size, they pay for it to get shipped back, and they're going to send it back. I heard of some dude that accidentally ripped uh, a pair of his hard scrabble pants, and he was upset about it, and he let Scree know, and they replaced them for him. Guys, this is a great company. That's the kind of company that I am proud to have supporting this show and being partnered with them. Uh, It's just, again, a great company story and and, and a company that you guys would be proud to own the gear for. It'll get you through any season, anywhere in North America. Check it out at ScreeGear.com and use the promo code The Western Huntsman for 15% off and free shipping at checkout. And last, but by far not least, Phelps Game Calls. Guys, Phelps Game Calls, uh, you guys, if you've listened to any of these episodes, uh, as I kind of dissected my last September, I had so many bull elk encounters using these calls, and I used everything from the pink Maverick to the the pink amp to the Maverick. I used the Renegade bugle tube. I used a couple of their external read calls. I just had a ball calling in elk left and right, hand over fist, because these calls work. Obviously, they work well. It's not just about that, though. Guys, Jason Phelps started this company from scratch and built it into what it is now. The company, the game call company that we all know well. And I I just, I think that that is so important. These these American companies that are born out of an idea and they grow into this this thing that that we can all get behind and love and support and and the personalities and the people behind it, that's Phelps Game Calls. Salt of the Earth company, salt of the earth people that run it. And I can't say enough good things about Phelps Game Calls. Don't forget, it's not just about elk with Phelps. You get you a, uh, a black ta- a blacktail in distress call and watch those deer come into you while they're rutting because it fires up those, those does. And what do you think is right behind those does during the rut? November's coming. Make sure you're getting your deer calls as well. So check it out at phelpsgamecalls.com and use the promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off at sh- uh, checkout. I keep wanting to say shipping. (laughs) That's how I roll. All right, guys. With that said, thank you to the sponsors of this show. Let's get back to the discussion. Hope you guys are enjoying the show. We'll talk to you later. So, oh, go ahead. Here, just to to back it up, fill in a few blanks, and and back up some of what Dirk was saying here. But, um, so with the logging industry, many of the guys in the group or gals 
our part of the login, but our point, I guess, of that was that the changing on the landscape is huge. What is not changing, or we hadn't seen much until we did come along, was fish and game changing any of their seasons, takes. In fact, things were increasing. So uh, not only was Dirk talking about the additional doe tags, uh, what the heck was it? It was uh, 800 in, in our uh, units. Uh, we've got 500. 800 units. 810A alone. Yeah. And, but then also there were second tags and, you know, it, it was just incredible. So what the, the commissioner finally uh, listened to what we had found as a group. And, and remember, this was just the seven of us when we first started out, all of a collective, very, very diverse backgrounds, every one of us. Uh, but we all had the same view of what was happening to the whitetail herd quantity and quality. And so when we met, we, we invited an individual who had been a uh, two-term past commissioner, Alex Irby. So the secret to the sauce of, I, I know you asked me this question yesterday, why did you guys succeed where so many other groups haven't? Or what, why did you have success? Mm -hmm. Well, Alex, we listened to him. And he said, number one, I agree with you guys because he's been here a very long time. And he said, having been on the commission, he said, I'm seeing a heck of a decline in the whitetail. I don't know what you guys are going to do about it. But he suggested the way we did it was form an organization. And his whole point was uh, all these folks that you hear at the coffee shop or you call down to fishing game. And I hate to say it, but you complain. You know, you, you just, I didn't get my deer. Uh, the deer are small, all this. Alex said, get together a collective group and have one point of contact. It's a lot better than trying to hit 50 different phone calls at Lewiston than one call representing those 50 people. So that's where we kind of got our initial start. And we just ballooned from there. And all seven folks brought something different to the table of what to try, what to do, and their experiences. And what we finally unlocked was that uh, the key to helping fishing game, we don't want to de demonize them either, but... Uh, they had been going and justifying on a 15-year-old public survey. Say, say that, that one was for both. Did you say that was a 15-year-old? Sorry, you cut out there. 15-year-old, yes. Okay. Yeah, and they had, they had done it uh, way back when. And uh, the uh, what they had was uh, the survey, only 350 people responded to it in a positive way. and. They had been going on that from Riggins to Canada. That's what was based Let's, all of this. Man, it sounds like he's getting jumped in there or something. Chopping wood or something. <laughs> oh, it's a, it's a compromise. That was restocking the beer cooler. So. Uh, <laughs> oh well, that you know what. I, so that that's an okay shutdown here. <laughs> it totally is. That's uh, actually in the policy book of the Western Huntsman podcast. There you go. Um, so what what uh, what actually helped us. To understand, because I think that's a real big part of what this group was able to bring into the picture and help the commissioner, because uh, unless an outside group, the commissioner does uh, rely very heavy on the fishing game, plus what he's able to find on his own. But in our case, we were able to bring something that was right there in front of everybody, but we didn't know it. And it was right on the uh, the website of the, the fishing game itself. But 
I got a hold of that survey and then we contacted Blanco and he said, all right, uh, this is the way uh, I like a commissioner to work is he comes in neutral. We brought something to the table, but he says they've been working on a 15 year survey, but what kept being thrown around and this is what you had to key in on was the percentages. 75% were happy with the hunting. Okay, well, that sounds pretty good. But then I, I actually met with the uh, director and with the biologist, Clay Hickey at the time, and uh, I asked, well, show me the numbers. That's when the thing unraveled, when the 350 person number fell out on the table. And I said, now, wait a minute, you're talking from Riggins to Canada. So that's when Blanco kicked into gear and what he did, which was very nice and very cool, was he went to Fish and Game, and they gave him an eight-hour uh, meeting, and he asked them, he said, show me the data, show me what's going on, why is this survey being used for 15 years to justify everybody being happy? Because in the meantime, like Dirk was saying, our herds were plummeting. Mm -hmm. So obviously this survey was not telling the whole story here. And that's when he then presented to the board of commissioners to, to say, wait a minute, we need to stand down some of this. I think it was 2008 is when they bumped it up to that 53 day season. But the whole point is that uh, our group had a lot of outside help. It had very, seven very determined individuals who brought nothing but experience and attitude to the table and a determination to try and figure out things. So what we did learn of the process was that all changes, you don't call the Lewiston office or any of your regional offices. You have to go to uh, testify. And they do have several different locations throughout the state, but you have mm -hmm. to determine when your commissioner has to present something to the board of commissioners. They have to vote on it. That's where all your changes are made or, or all your deals are done. So that was the biggest thing this group discovered was that, yes, fishing game office, regional offices, and uh, local folks are very important, but that's not where your changes are made. It's starting through your commissioner. So I think uh, Dirk and I talked, and he brought up a very good point is communication between the group, and that's why Alex was very specific, don't have you know, 50 people calling the office down there, have your group get together, present its, uh, uh, you know, points in an orderly fashion, go to your commissioner, see if you get any traction there, because he is the individual, not, not the regional director or anybody else at that office. He is the one that has to take it before the other board of commissioners. That's where your decisions and votes are done. Gotcha. That, that's where your, that's where your actual meat and potatoes happens. And, and so you're going down, <clears throat> going down to the local office and saying, hey, by God, I'm mad about whatever, and bending on the local biologist or the local director's ear a little bit, um, it does no good. And they'll probably look at you and be like, oh, you don't say, and nod their head and smile and try not to, you know, make you feel bad, you know, try to smooth things over. But it's not their job or their say-so to make changes in the rules and regulations of the state. And how, I, on like, a, as a whole, how cooperative was Idaho Fish and Game outside of the commission? Because I, I know, I know the commissioner was pretty cooperative. But be, be nice, uh, not, Dirk. 
Nice. Well, um, they weren't they weren't very cooperative. Um, they did it nicely, the, but they weren't cooperative. Right. Uh, what you'll find with the, dealing with the Department of Fish and Game is they will answer very specific questions vaguely. <laughs> and you have to get very, very, very specific and dig in very deep. They're not going to offer you anything, any kind of extra information or anything to talk about. I mean, if you want to know something, you have to point blank ask those exact questions that you want exact answers for. Um, and sometimes they might even beat around the bush. But what what we found is, you know what, you know, for lack of a better term is we beat them with their own with their own information. Okay. They'd been operating, we talked about that that 15 year old survey, but they'd been operating on a management plan, a deer management plan that was 15 year olds, 15 years old. It had it had expired. How long was it only supposed to run for? 10 years, Bill? Yeah, I, I believe 10 years are correct. So they pretty much went to, five years in the air. Yeah, you know, for their own, what they said they were going to do, you know, they were supposed to revamp and have a whole new management plan after 10 years. Wow. They didn't. They ran it They ran it to 15 years and never took a look at it once. Along comes us. We start asking questions. We start pushing buttons. We start creating a ripple. We start creating waves. So with the help of the commission, then they started asking it. And I'll tell you what, they didn't really help us at all. They were they didn't really want to help us at all for the longest time as far as the within the department. The commission is separate from the department. But within the department, they didn't want to really help us at all until we did a television interview. Um, local, The local station out of Lewiston came up and interviewed me. And we talked about it and said, hey, we've been, we've been stonewalled by these guys. They're not helping us out. They're not doing anything. I'll tell you what, within a day or two, they were on the phone. Hey, what, what do you guys want to know? We want to sit down and talk. We, we want to we work with you guys. So I think just finally getting you know that out in public that they weren't wanting to, to help us, that really helped that really helped us. <laughs> and what kind of what kind of like pushback were you getting from hunters outside of the fishing game when when you guys started kind of pushing some of these initiatives uh, at the fishing game? Were you guys getting like like negative feedback or and pushback from hunters? Or well, I'll tell you, just initially, one of the most uh, surprising pushbacks was we we got with our commissioner, Mr. Blanco, and and we said we want to change, and he said, well, you, you have to eat the elephant one bite at a time. So we decided to look back into that survey. And then 2008 was the key to ask for a, just a shorter season. Didn't change dollar income, didn't change anything, just gave the deer a little bit more time for the rut to propagate and, and so forth. Uh, but that was very key that um, to ask for that short duration of stand down and the biggest blowback, other than individuals, they would they would uh, slam you on s social media. But uh, when you called them out, said, "Come on down to the meeting. We'll give you the mic." Nobody ever showed. So, yeah. but uh, one of the most interesting things that time after time guys brought to the to the table and said, "You won't believe it," but they're saying we're not asking for enough time to shut down the season. That was our initial surprise that they're going, "Okay, fine. You guys only asked for eleven days." But that's not enough. But that's like our commissioner cautioned. He said, look, you got to start somewhere. So let's start with a simple little shutdown. 
And just to mirror that out, now that five units have been shut down 10A for two years, 11 days, and a big, big shutdown around Elk City on four other units, just a shortening of the season was all it was. And, uh, and the, elimina the elimination of that second tag, big uptick in the, in the deer that have survived. So that one little change brought a positive so. So kind of doing away with the second tag. What about the doe tag? Is that in 10 a.m.? That's, even, that's so, even in addition. That, so, that's, so a guys, separate, that's a whole separate page where they were just throwing on these extra, like Dirk said, what, 800 doe tags? Uh, just go back to that one unit. That's a yeah. lot of does in one unit. So here, okay, I'll let, I'm going to back up just a little bit. And, and the second tags that, that Bill's talking about for those who are unfamiliar. So if in Idaho, if there are non-resident deer tags, non-resident elk tags left over after a certain point, what is August, August 1st? Yeah. Not so sure on the there. date exactly. Then those come up for sale. If, to anybody to buy a second tag. So non-residents can buy a second tag. Residents can buy a second tag at that non-resident price. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we just, we, one of the progresses we made was the discontinuing of, of that use, using that second deer tag in unit 10 a and some of the other uh, Clearwater units there. Um, but that extra doe tag and it was an addition. Yes. So if you played your cards right and had the money, you could actually shoot three deer, right? Um, and, and just that, just that one unit, 10 a 800 deer. And I'm like, you guys really must hate these deer. Why do you want to shoot? You have over 7,000, <laughs> over 7,000 extra doe tags in the Clearwater region alone. I'm like why? Well, the farmers. And I said, okay, if you look at 10 a, you go ahead and dissect that private one agriculture. Yeah. Private agricultural land is not even 10% of those 1 million acres. Okay. There's not yeah. 800 deer living, <laughs> living on, in the agricultural areas that they're giving out these extra deer tags for. Um, so that's an addition. So that's, you know, they sell unlimited resident deer tags, you know, so everybody gets to go up there and, and go deer hunting. Mm -hmm. But then, so you have to consider how many deer there's thousands okay let's say let's just put it to you this way i forget the numbers but there's thousands of people that hunt that that unit okay yeah, but yeah. in addition to, to those thousands and, and a lot of those folks you know shoot their doe or their buck or whatever but then they offer an extra tag on top of 800 more it's and it yes. has to be and they have to be shot within a mile of an agricultural field um but you see it every year people are they're they're a long ways from an agricultural field filling their deer tags. So it just really wiped out our deer population. I'll, I'll give you a Jim, one, one additional uh, item that was a casualty of that uh, allowance of harvest, that level of harvest, was we had an extremely successful uh, outfitter uh, based out of the Elk River uh, country. And uh, he hunted over in 10A for the whitetail and and uh, he was getting tremendous uh, client uh, response. Uh, one year, 22 clients out of state. You do the math on what that was doing for their economy over there for the, for the business of the individual. And the second tag rolled around for that opportunity. These out-of-state folks found out about it. 
and uh, he he could see the immediate immediate decline because they were very good at what they did, and these clients expected you know bucks for both tags or at least opportunities or the attempt, and they did a very good job, but it was also their undoing. Uh, he went as a follow-up. Uh, this was after a little bit of time, several years of these double tags. He went to the next uh, show back in Pennsylvania, and he went from 22 clients to zero because word had gotten around from the year before that the the buck population had declined so dramatically in their area where they set the camps up, and he didn't have anybody come back, and he he sold the whitetail part of his outfitting business. Oh wow, that's too bad, huh? So there, there are some economic consequences here. Yeah, for sure. There's, it's always a domino you, effect. Yeah. So Jim, you kind of ask about kind of some of the, what the public, you know, and you know, we've had a lot of a lot of public support, but we've had we've taken some shots, you know, and yeah, um, I've I've seen some of those shots, and and they they a lot of it is is centered around, you know, people that don't want to be trophy hunters and, and think that that's what this is about. And, and, but what I think a lot of people, well, what's your take on that before I go there? Well, here's the thing. Like, let's say you're a meat hunter. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, you want to, you know, you want to, you and your family, you want to go out, you don't care if you shoot a big buck or whatever. You just got to fill your tags, get some meat, which is great. That's awesome. That's what, that's what we're all out there for in the end. But shutting the season down 10 days early, you know, take carving off 10 days off of a 53 day season. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can't kill your does and, and your other deer in 42, 43 days, well, you know what? Something's wrong there. And I'm not saying something wrong with the way you hunt. I'm saying something's wrong with what we have for deer. Yeah. And, um, you know, some guys are just like, you're ruining my hunting. You're ruining my hunting. I love to hunt the week of thanksgiving and they act like we don't <laughs> i i i'll tell you a little bit about a bit about my background i spent 18 years working for les schwab right that's a tire company here in the northwest yep and those 18 years i moved all over but i didn't get to move back home back to where i was raised back to the county in idaho where i was raised where i loved deer hunting right i loved hunting whitetails so finally after, after I changed careers and finally I'm able to move back after all those years, it was actually, um, well over 20 years been gone. I finally got moved back to, to Clearwater County. I'm like, yes, thank, thank God. I get to move back and enjoy whitetail hunting again. And I'm like, where the heck did all the deer go? Mm-hmm. You know, they think I, that we're just, we don't hunt. That's, that's one of my favorite things. I'm, I'm the type of person, even when I worked, worked and I used to work a job six days a week. If I had one day to hunt on Sunday, I was up early and I went hunting, you know, I never missed a day that I was able to, to hunt mm-hmm. the last two or three years. I've been cutting it back because it's the same thing I see every time. It's, I, I just don't see the deer. I'm just like, well, man, I'm not going to go out and shoot just a deer. I, I don't want to be a label, a trophy hunter, but I don't feel like I'm, I'm helping the situation. I always feel like people should be part of the solution, not by maybe part of the problem. So me just indiscriminately shooting a deer that I'm part of the problem at that point. Right. I, I want mm-hmm. there to be more deer, so I'm not going to just go out and shoot them, but we all, you know, everyone in the group, we all love to deer hunt and 
yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it sucks cutting off 10 days on that last tail end, you know, Thanksgiving time, everybody's got a little bit of extra deer time to hunt deer in Thanksgiving, but you start looking at the greater picture. It's like, man, if we can cut things back a little bit here and there and get our deer herds back, I don't need till December 1st to shoot a, a deer or a big buck. I mean, th there will be, it's going to start backfilling. The hunting's going to get better and you're going to have a better experience right up to the, to, to the end of the season, which is like November 20th. That that's, and, and I think it also kind of speaks volumes to like, we're the kind of guys that will forego our own personal wanting to fill our own tags. And we're, we're willing to cut back our own season and harvest opportunities for the better of the deer. And I think that's what it's all about. It's called conservation. Yeah. Yeah, totally agree. So if, if North Idaho whitetails had their druthers about how these whitetail would be managed, how the seasons would look, um, do you guys, what, what do you guys foresee as being the most beneficial to the deer herds? I think me personally, and I, and Bill, he can kind of chime in here too, but I think, I think we got to, we have to cut back on how many deer we're killing, whether that be shortening the seasons a little bit, you know, you shorten that, you, you take off the 20th to December 1st, you, you remove that part of the equation. That's the most vulnerable time for whitetail bucks. Okay. That's when yeah. they start letting their guard down. That's when they go full, full on rut crazed, you know, more or less. I mean, of course, some are still stay pretty sharp and pretty smart, but that's when they really start letting their gut down, especially those two and a half, three and a half year old bucks. And they start coming out of the woodworks and they walk around down. People are shooting them out of their pickups. People are shooting them off their four wheelers. Um, if we can, if we can remove that period out of the equation and their vulnerability proofs in the pudding, you're going to, you're going to kill less deer because up until they start rutting hard a lot, in a lot of places on, especially on, on, on public land, these deer are nocturnal as can be mm -hmm. once they rut hit and they and you get some good cold weather you start seeing bucks popping out of the woodworks i've seen it every year since i've been hunting deer um so if, if we can cut out some of the shorten those seasons a, a little bit it's not a lot it's not a drastic change it's 10 days okay if we can shorten that window a little bit i think i think as we get more deer and more competition for breeding and stuff i think you'll start seeing more rut activity before the 20th because back in the old days before we had it this season past the 20th there was fantastic, phenomenal rut action the first 20 days of, of November. Yeah. Okay? I think we need, and this is my personal opinion, I think we need to remove every single extra doe tag with the exception of actual actual agricultural property. Okay, not within that one mile of it. And we have to work with the, the ranchers and farmers and stuff that have that property with the excess deer to allow people on there, you know, there's mm -hmm. That's a lot a of that stuff. It's super challenging. And it, unless you know somebody, unless you're not a, you know, you don't know if you know their family or they know you, they'll let you hunt a lot of times. But sometimes it's cold stranger. They won't let you hunt, you know, and probably from bad experiences with hunters, you know, driving through their fields or knocking down their fences or leaving gates open. Under, definitely understandable. But I think there needs to be a better process to where those farmers can get those excess deer off their property. I'm not saying, you know, there's certain units in 11A and 11 and 8 and 8A where the farmers are just getting eaten up by deer. 
but they have to to be able to get people on their property to shoot those deer, whether that be instead of issuing out, and, and this is just me spitballing, instead of issuing out all these people applying for these tags and then the farmer saying, no, maybe the farmer should say, okay, I got 10 doe tags or I got 15 doe tags, family members, whoever, friends, they can come over and whack these does off my property. I think, I think you could kind of see some better control of, of herd numbers if they had that to use at their discretion. And they, you know, they do and not that. turn it into oh. a monet. Some places, but they can't, and it can't be monetized. They they're not allowed. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't be allowed to sell the tags or sell trespassing rights. If you want, if you want help from the fishing game to neutralize some of these deer on your property, then you have to work. You have to work work with the the people and work with the fishing game and let let those people get on your land and not charge them a bunch of money. Now, if you're trophy hunting on there, I guess that's a whole complete different story. But but if if you're complaining and and if or if you know you're asking for uh, depredation checks, let's say, oh, the deer and elk just ruined my fields this year. You better fishing game needs to write me a check. Which a couple of years ago in the Clearwater region, I spent I think they 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 spent five hundred thousand dollars in depredation checks. Hmm. Hmm. If, if you want that money, you best be letting some folks hunt on your property and, and, and maybe we need to find a way to, to, to get it, shoot enough deer off that property. Yeah. That, and, and like I said, that, that happens in some places like Arizona, I think does that. Uh, and I could be yeah. way off base, but some States, they do have that where, where they allot a certain amount of tags to a ranch owner and he could divvy those out to whoever he wants. And, and that it, it seems to, to, I, I don't know enough about this to, to talk intelligently about it, but I, I've, I've just brushed upon it somewhere. Uh, but it seems yeah. like this easy thing to make happen. And one of the things that happens, I think a lot with whether it is Idaho Fish and Game or, or Parks and Rec in Montana, or, you know, all these other agencies throughout the Western states is little changes seem like they are a huge hurdle to make happen. And I don't know why that is like a lot of this is just obvious stuff. Uh, but, but just a simple little rule change is, is turns into this big massive hurdle for associations like North Idaho whitetail hunter or whitetails forever, or, you know, even RMEF or, or some of these bigger organizations and, and just hunters in general. Um, it, it's man, it should be easier. And I think there's something else we need to talk about, you know, that I don't know. And I think it's on the fishing games radar a little bit, but Idaho is one of the fastest growing states in the union. Yeah. Okay. We've got thousands of people moving here. And a lot of those folks are moving here because of our resources. We have a beautiful country. We have, you know, uh, we have long seasons and, and opportunities to go to get a tag easily and to go hunting. Um, and a lot of folks are taking that up. But there's been, sorry, there's there's been no um, reaction as as far as to resident tags. And I know there's been a big you know uproar and people about let's cut back the the non-resident tags. But you know at some point, <clears throat> I hate to be the guy to say it, but at some point uh, that needs to be addressed because you just can't keep selling an, an unlimited supply of deer tags for these yeah. units. And, you know, that we, they talk about congestion and, you know, the fish and game. And I think that hunter congestion's on their, on their mind, but that is a, that's a huge, huge thing is, is, is resident congestion. Um, I know a lot of 
a lot of local folks in small town America, you know, the Clearwater region, you know, they're very concerned with the non-resident congestion. And I've seen it myself, you know, there's tons and tons of hunters out there. And a lot of, a lot of the guys are non-resident and, you know, I can't begrudge them. I go hunting out of state too, you know? Um, but I think one of our biggest focuses or one of our biggest asks is, you know, we're not, there has to be, there has to be a cap on those tags that makes sense. I know at they have some to make point, money. Yeah. yeah at some yeah. point, I, I think you're right. And it's, it's such a dangerous topic in terms of how hunters react to that. I mean, you, you get people spitfire mad about that. And a lot, people, the, a lot of people, a lot of people there, the focus is always non-residents. Oh, non-residents are coming over. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're taking over our units and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that that, that doesn't exist to an extent, but I, I've been saying for a while, it's the, the resident, the growth in our population in Idaho. And it's the same thing. Like Wyoming's growing like crazy. Um, if, if you look at the population of Sheridan, Wyoming, and compare it to 10 years ago, it's a massive increase. Same thing like Bozeman, Montana, right. massive increase. Yep. Uh, and and these, these folks are fleeing states like California and, the, and, and Oregon and, and some of these coastal states and, and coming to places like Idaho and Wyoming and, and, uh, and Colorado, obviously. Uh, and, and it's such, it's one of those things like it's almost, you're safer, uh, lighting your hair on fire with a bottle of bourbon, riding a, a motorcycle down the freeway than, than bringing this up on social media because you will oh, yeah. get, you, you get ripped, you know, you and, roasted, and I under, yeah. yeah, for sure. And I, I understand it because I love, I love the, the, the over the counter, uh, unlimited tags in the state of Idaho in these long seasons until the population increase is such, which it's already there, that it really starts negatively impacting our herds. And, yeah. and, and the same can be said for elk. The same can be said for mule deer. Uh, but I know there's a lot of folks, when I, when I talk to people outside of Idaho, a lot of people bring up this north central Idaho area um, because they've heard somewhere through the grapevine that there's great whitetail hunting there. And, yeah. and so it's, it's this hot spot that just gets inundated with both residents and non I know a lot of folks that come out of Boise and, and down south that come up to North Idaho or North Central Idaho to come, come after these whitetails up here. And I, again, I, I don't blame them. Um, I, I love hunting them up here, but uh, it, it, there, there is that there's a feasible point that, that we've like kind of maximized. You, you know what I mean? And right, right. <clears throat> and what I kind of like, what we've kind of proposed before with the fishing game is, you know, if you're not going to cut back on some of the, the non-resident tags, okay, well, why don't we figure out a way to, to redistribute people? Like you're going to have to pick a, a, a unit or an area to hunt. And that's where you get your tag for. And there's only so many tags. There's a cap, a limited yeah. amount of kind of like what our elk zones are. That way you don't get so much congestion. You know, you spread them out through the units, you know, and yeah, they just you know, did that with elk. So it'd be, it just makes sense to do that with whitetail and mule deer as well. Right, right. But, uh, you know, and it's, it's funny. I talked to, you know, I, I, I network with a lot of people and I talk to a lot of people and I'm, there's two different type of non-residents I talk to. Um, there's some guys that say, man, uh, we live in, for instance, we live in Washington and, and our hunting sucks so bad. We love Idaho because we, we can go over there. There's long seasons. We can get a tag and we, me and my family can go over and hunt and we have a good time or whatever. And then, you know, well, I'm like, well, how's the deer hunt? Oh, it, it's okay. We see some deer or whatever. And we, we get, we get some, um, 
But then you'll talk to some other guys from non-resident and they're like, Oh, you went to Idaho. Yeah. Where'd you go? And he'll, he'll mention some names, you know, they're close to home or close to places I've hunted before. And I said, how was it? And they're like, I'll never go back. I'm like, how come? He's like, there's no deer. I paid all this money to go over there. There's no deer. We hiked here. We hiked there. We did this. We did that, you know, explaining their hunting tactics. And they sound pretty fair. Like you should have seen deer um, if there were any, but, but I'm just, you know, and it's echo inside my head that like, well, I, I see the same thing every year, bud. But uh, so I think there's some non-resident folks who they're, they're just happy to be able to get a tag and have somewhere to go with their buddies and go hunting and, and maybe shoot a deer of some kind. Um, then there's others that want a better experience and, and those guys usually say, I'll never go back unless something changes. Um, so, and what's that I don't know. I think we're all in this. Sales? Yeah. Right. That's going to do some bad stuff to tag sales. And, and we kind of talk about this. We've talked about this and it was brought up actually with some local business people. They're like, you know, they seen it with the elk hunt, you know, back in the nineties after, you know, Idaho had a really bad winter. And then, uh, you know, killed off a ton of elk. And then with the reintroduction of wolves, you know, there's, you've seen some areas just have gigantic declines in elk numbers. Then about the time the elk were coming back from that winter, then they get slammed again by the wolves. There was a time Idaho struggled to sell elk tags. Mm -hmm. That's when they started discounting tags. They started selling the second tags, right? It was tough for Idaho to sell tags. They about went broke. They won't admit it, but they about went broke. so, and during those times, guess who suffered besides the fishing game? Local businesses, you know, Sportsman Dollars puts a lot of money in the community. Well, if you run your seasons wide open and your bag limits wide open for years and years and years, and you deplete your deer to a point that people quit coming back, guess what? You're out of business. Yeah. And, and that's what some of these local business folks have told us that, you know, we'd rather have them cut it back a little bit, you know, 10 days. That ain't a big sacrifice, but at least people will keep coming back, you know, the rest of the time. And they don't just tank it out to where we don't have any deer left. Um, people will still keep coming and, 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 that, and we'll get our business. And I think that was a pretty good way to look at it. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, this, uh, as we're kind of we're kind of winding this conversation down, what as as we're kind of going forward, Bill, you're the you're the new president of of North Idaho Whitetails Forever. Uh, what what else do you want listeners to know, or or what initiatives do you guys have in mind uh, in terms of goals uh, as as we kind of go into this new year? Well, it's real simple. Uh, we had a pretty wise. Uh, person to get some advice from, from several past commissioners. And their point was just remember to back up. We're talking about a live animal here that has to survive 24, seven, 365, not just hunting seasons. Mm-hmm. We've got all the predator issues. It's a many headed coin here that affects this one species as well as all others. And uh, you got to take into account flexibility. That's maybe the big key word that what our group discovered, Fish and Game, learned they didn't have to be. Nobody was given uh, any real flack other than phone calls and coffee talk and that type of thing. But once we began to get into the back rooms and say, wait a minute, we're seeing dramatic declines out here and you guys aren't changing or adapting. That was my big point with the logging. 
to adjust seasons, to cut back numbers, to try and take less animals, fitting the amount of habitat change because things do evolve, things come back. Uh, that's that was kind of like you know with. Uh, your habitat has to change. It, it can't stay stagnant or that will undo your numbers over time also. But yeah. that's the big thing is that we, we need to pare back some here. We've had a wide open full throttle. Everybody loves it. Uh, I mean, I was part of the problem. 12 bucks in that one area that uh, Dirk and I took the, the folks on that tour. It's not clear cut. Okay, well, that that's fine. It's transitioning but we need to cut back on some numbers, you know, try to adjust our take, our season lengths. And that all ties back to the businesses that if you're in here for the long run, we've got to remember that this herd has to propagate, survive, keep our quality quantity there, or that will undo the people coming here. So, you know, you know, it's everybody coming around for the same thing, but I, I think going forward is we just have to learn some flexibility Learn to, I'm sorry, uh, the kid at the candy store has to take less in his bag and go home because it'll deplete the, the candy on the shelves. Well, that's basically with our game here. You can't have it all because it so, will come to an end at some point, and, and that's what we're certainly trying to avoid. So you guys you guys achieved the, the shorter season for 10A. It, what, is there one particular thing? that you in your minds would make the biggest impact is it uh what, what's the biggest hurdle i guess is is it is it the increase in, in residents in idaho is it non-resident hunters is it length of season is it logging is is it uh the doe tags what what do you think is the biggest impact on on the uh, whitetail net unit well i think all of it is is uh, the answer to that question is there is not one magic bullet here that will either undo or, or help everything. Uh, it's a combination of all of the above. And Dirk brought up a good point that one thing that we have not had to deal with and fishing game, careful what you ask for, because now we're flooded with hunters where before we were having an issue trying to come up with ways to attract people to this state. Yeah. Well, now we've opened the floodgates and it, and you got to stop it because not only are you getting inundated uh, in the outside world, uh, you guys do a lot more than I do, but I'm a group. I'm part of that uh, hunting fool based out of Utah. Mm -hmm. And I talk to those guys because uh, occasionally I step out to other States myself and you can consult with them. So I asked them what their outside view of Idaho was. And they said, well, we'll tell you, you guys are kind of like the bargain basement uh, go-to because Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, I can go through the whole list of states. You got to put in for the tag. You wait and sit there and go, well, I'm not going this year. So you buy a quality point. And so they tell their clients down there, well, go to Idaho. They're over the counter. They're, they're just going nuts with the animals. And I said, well, that was the case for a while. But now you're experiencing the inside influx of people, residents, mm -hmm. as well as non-residents. And you've got outfits now telling, come to Idaho because you're, you know, no restrictions. Maybe, maybe the, if you want a, uh, a word to pick on, we need to start to restrain some of our no rules, no holds barred uh, free-for-all out there. Maybe, maybe that's my biggest key is that uh, 
we don't have point count restrictions. Um, you know, so many other things out there that other states do to try and restrain a little bit so that you don't harvest all of these animals. And I think our group brought to the forelight or foresight, uh, which Brian Brooks with the IWF here statewide picked up, that we were talking about age class distribution <clears throat> and fish and game was focusing strictly on numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, up, the, the take was over 25,000 for 10 years. Well, okay, then we started to ask, well, yes, but what you've lost in this free-for-all out here with no holds barred is the quality of the age class that carries on the genes, and this is what the rut's all about, nature selecting your better animals. So if we're looking to try and go forward, we've, we've got to pull in our horns some air, so to speak, and just stop the number of animals taken and begin to focus that we want the golden goose to keep laying the eggs, the businesses want to stay open. So it's maybe asking everybody to pull back a little bit, not just one group or, you know, we want all the bow hunters and screw all you rifle guys type of thing. It's everybody coming to the table to contribute maybe a little less take and uh, let the animals try to put back what we've taken away. Yeah, that's always a hard part when we're talking about hunters is bringing everybody to the, to the table and, and compromising a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, nothing's easy. As we're, as we're sitting here recording this, we can't even figure out who won the freaking election yesterday. And, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> I'm not sure how this is going to look by the time I drop this episode next week. But as of right now, uh, in the, in the year 2020, when we like, you know, like I was telling Dirk, we, we send rocket ships to outer space and have electric cars and, uh, all, you know, the internet and all this technology that we have, uh, we can't figure out who won the election. And, and, and it's just, it's, it's never easy. It's, this stuff is just never simple. And, and it's, it's good, uh, to have, you know, like North Idaho, Northern Idaho whitetails forever, I, I think is a, is a perfect example of how hunters can really make a difference. And it's not just a bunch of guys sitting, sitting down, uh, getting on Facebook and bitching and moaning about this. And, and you guys are actually taking the information. You're, you're coming at it with a, with an actual reasonable approach with real facts, real evidence, real numbers. Uh, you're getting involved with the commissioners. You're getting involved with the Idaho fishing game. And, and this, this information, this, this is what it's all about. This is what a group should be. And to become a member, it's, uh, it's pretty simple, right? I mean, I, I'm on your website here. You just click on that Become a Member tab. It's only like 30 bucks for the basic level. Uh, do you guys have any kind of pitch for people to, to want to join North, Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever, uh, why they should join, what you recommend? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit. Um, whether, whether you agree that there's a lack of deer in your area or not, or in Idaho, I feel like if you, if you love whitetail deer, and if you if you want to if you want there to be whitetail deer to continue to 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 uh, hunt later on, I think you need to join with us. And in fact, maybe you have a very different opinion than we do, but you're passionate about hunting. That's not to say you can't be part of this organization and even be part of the you know the the uh, of the the panel of us that that work and advocate you know at a state level. Um, there's nothing to say you can't work with us you know, you may have some really great ideas. You know, we're not saying we, we disagree, so we hate you. No, you're obviously a passionate, uh, passionate deer hunter. 
why don't you come sit at the table with us and help us, help us work through this to where it works good for you, works good for everybody. I think, I think here's the thing. If you love white-tailed deer and you love conservation, all of this is, is a good thing. It's all, it all ends at a, a good end road. The end road is more deer, better quality deer. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and maybe you disagree with some of our thoughts. Maybe you can come in and help us, help us see the light. But I think by becoming a member, you're, you're uh, becoming a friend or you're showing your support for the, the deer and, and maybe giving those deer a voice. And with, oh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah. I was just going to expand on that a little bit because uh, we just had a gathering here for our new commissioner, Don Ebert, which uh, you just had on your uh, podcast here the other day. And uh, it was very interesting. We, we, uh, we've grown as an organization from when we first started and we learned that uh, strength in numbers and diversity, right? So mm -hmm. we got together and this was through Brian Brooks with the wildlife foundation uh, but we're now interacting with the pheasant group up there in northern Idaho, Jim Hagedorn, uh, the the houndsmen, uh, the the bone collectors. I mean, it, it's very interesting when you get sportsmen's groups as a just a generic. We brought a lot to the table, and they they showed up in strength. The trappers, Rusty Kramer said, you know, I can't be there, but I'll send a rep. Well, he did. The guy drove all the way up, and we we had a gathering here at our Best Western here in Orofino. So. Joining the the NIWF, the whitetail group that we, we did start here, we've opened ourselves up to a much more broader picture of just the general state of Idaho wildlife, and that's where the groups help each other. I mean, uh, Rusty and, and Justin Webb up there in northern Idaho, they have been just totally supportive of our group because they said, finally, you have an organization that is just out there to try and improve things for all sportsmen and for the game in Idaho. And uh, we, we've got nothing but support from groups like those. So when you join, uh, you really do expand a lot of connections with other groups, not just the deer, but uh, certainly that's what started us. But it, it's, a, it's a much bigger uh, benefit, I think, to the state of Idaho and uh, joining us. Uh, we give you a voice down in, down in Boise, which, uh, we didn't know that that's what you needed. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a great point, Bill, with, in terms of, <clears throat> with these organizations working together, I think that that we're beyond the point as hunters and as a hunting community where we can just be, you know, a purist in one area, right? We can't, we can't just be hunters that, um, you know, we only care about whitetail and and everything else can kind of go by the wayside. You don't pay much attention to it uh, kind of situation because we have these groups that, that are working against us and they are united as, as and they come together and they work together. They share ideas. They, they fund things together. And I'm talking about like your anti-hunting organizations and things of that nature. So when you have, uh, if, if you're a member of RMEF and you also like to hunt whitetails, you, sh you should be a member of North Idaho Whitetails Forever. Uh, if, if you're a, if you're a trapper, um, you know, all these, all these groups, when we come to the table together, 
we have a lot more influence and impact on on something like the fish and game or against some of the the, the possible litigations to, that that are sure to come down the road from these anti hunting organizations and things like that that get their funding from a lot more that they have a much bigger funding pool than we do as hunters and, and a much bigger population than we do as hunters. So uh, that that's a great point. So I just wanted to highlight that as we're we're on that subject. Do you guys have chapters? Um, more than just what's, what's in Orofino. Cause, cause I, I, I know that there's something going on in Kootenai County with North Idaho whitetails forever. What can you just kind of expand on that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, we started, uh, with our public meetings back there in 2018 and, and it was just the Orofino, uh, still trying to find its way of direction and where to go. And, uh, it was right at that meeting in February that, uh, an individual from Lewiston approached us which in this Clearwater region, that is our big population center. And uh, Paul Snyder yeah. and, and Lonnie Gehring uh, approached us, and it was interesting. Paul just said, I love what you guys are trying to do here. He said, would you please bring your story and your effort to the Lewiston area? Well, that's paid off big time for us. Uh, Dirk and myself and uh, Rick Carver all went down to meet, and they brought 32 people into one meeting and it was just amazing of the like thoughts of sportsmen. Here, here we are telling ourselves to pare back, cut back, and tone down our take and harvest. And holy smokes, people are starting to really come around. So yes, we do. We started chapters, uh, and uh, we're still breaking headway up here in Grangeville. A very uh, large advocate up there for the elk, but uh, he also. Uh, called us and said, please bring your uh, group up here to Grangeville and get started with Larry Hatter. So uh, at this Good. point, there's four chapters that actually have been started. Awesome. Well, Dirk, Bill, any closing thoughts on this? Yeah, if you want to learn a little bit more about North Idaho, Northern Idaho, Whitetails Forever, you can check out our website. It's www.niwf.org. And uh, kind of talks about our mission statement. If you think it's uh, something you'd like to support, we have memberships available on there. Um, start out with the basics at, at 30 bucks and it goes on up there, on up from there. You can, we, uh, if, with the, with the, with the larger um, membership purchase, you get a hat or a sweatshirt, depending on what kind of uh, support you want to do. And, and uh, yeah, like I say, I mean, if, if you love deer, if you love wildlife and you want to be some part of something bigger than, uh, than just, complaining to the <laughs> grumbling to your buddies at the coffee shop or, or, or grumbling to the guy, the game warden every time you see him, you know, join our organization and, and let your voice be heard. And, and, uh, and maybe, you know, like I said before, you know, there's some people that, you know, don't agree with everything we say, but you know, it's, that doesn't mean they can't come and sit at the table and work with us and yeah. help, uh, help advocate for white tailed deer, whatever that may be. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that that is what every hunter should recognize is if you disagree with some of the initiatives of of Northern Idaho Whitetails Forever, Dirk's not going to give you a wedgie at the meeting. Uh, where we can all sit down and we can have these conversations and and really hash these things out because doing nothing is going to uh, be the worst case scenario in terms of how these whitetails turn out and, and these, these herd numbers, whether they, they grow or decrease is all going to be dependent on, on hunters involvement. So yeah, great conversation guys. I appreciate it. And you obviously yeah, it's my pleasure. I'll, obviously I'll put, I'll put, uh, I'm going to put the, 
the, the website in the show notes and, and um, you know, a few other things. If you guys want the information, just check it out in the show notes. It's, it's all going to be in there. And, and uh, I just appreciate you guys coming on. And, and this ties in nicely. You know, it's, it's November. The, the whitetail rut is on, so it should be kind of top of mind right now. And, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, hopefully make a difference with this. Appreciate Thank you very much. Appreciate you having us on. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. made it all the way to the end thank you so much for tuning into the show we sure appreciate your support this is jim huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at instagram at the western huntsman and on facebook at the western huntsman and you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com thanks again we'll see you guys next time stay western and i'll see you on the mountain